Let's turn tonight to Romans 8, as we mentioned in the prayer, that we will be looking at verse 34. Uh, but because we have others here, I know that haven't heard some of this. I'm not going to re-preach it, but I would like to read, beginning in verse 28, and uh, go down to verse 39. And again, as I said, my text will be verse 34. And we'll pick up with some of the context and then get into the message this evening of looking at verse 34. He reads here, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the text, verse 34, that we'll be looking at. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Well, from the reading of verses 28 down through verse 39, we can see that Paul is writing here to assure his readers that God's purpose towards us will be accomplished. That there is absolutely nothing that could take place within the creation that can cause us to never arrive at our destination, which, of course, is our full adoption, to wit, as he says in verse 23 there, the redemption of our body. As we saw earlier in this chapter, the Christian will go through sufferings. He will suffer, or excuse me, he will face sufferings in this life. Our salvation from sin doesn't exempt us from the perils and the sorrows and the destructions that come upon the face of this earth. In fact, we must suffer in this present time if we desire to reign with Christ. We need to realize that you and I, though we are saved and though we are justified, the Scripture still teaches us, though, that we still live in a fallen world. And thus, with all that about us, it is quite discouraging, isn't it? 
We look out. We don't see people living godly. We see the trials and the adversities of others. We see the trials and the adversities that we have. And we see other saints suffering. And it does can bring discouragement to our own hearts. Well, Paul here, in order to encourage us, though, assures to us that all things, though, will work to our good. We saw that in verse 28, did we not? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. If we love God, and thus we are the ones who are called to his purpose, all things, everything that takes place to us will redound then to our good. And I know that's hard at times to see all of that, and especially in the midst of our trials. But nonetheless, that's what you and I have to cling to. Though in the midst of our trials, that is the promise that you and I ought to hold on to. That all things do work together for good for us. It doesn't work together for good for those who are outside the eternal covenant of Christ. But for those who are the love, who are loved God and who are the called, then certainly then these promises are true. The ground and the assurance then of our reaching heaven at last, Paul assures us here, is God's purpose and God's love then towards us. We need to recognize, lay hold of those promises that Christ has accomplished all things that are necessary for us. Well, that's the overall context. The immediate context of verse 34, uh, which is, of course, our text, Paul has set forth some uh, rhetorical questions. That is, questions that he's not looking for an answer to, but just to make us think, and he himself even answers them. But he set forth these questions then to help us to see that we are secure and our future in Christ is secure. You ever wonder, as a, as a believer, whether you will hold out? You ever wonder, as a believer, where you really will make it to heaven? Well, Paul is setting forth these questions here to assure us that, look, look at these grounds. How could you think such a thing in light of these glorious promises and these glorious privileges that we have? And so he brings these questions to the minds of those who are reading this letter. Verse 31, for instance, what shall we say to these things? These things he just spoken of there was the things speaking of God's eternal purpose towards his people. He is going to redeem them. And as far as they, his people are concerned, I mean, as God is concerned for his people, these things have already taken place. Look at verse 30. They're already in the past tense. We've been predestinated. We've been called. We've been justified. And we've been glorified. Now, we look around. That's just not happened, has it? But in God's view of things, as an act of God inside his own being, we know that it's a sure thing. So there's one of them. And so Paul says, well, what then can we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is what? No one. If God is for his people, then absolutely nothing then can really be against us that's going to ruin this great and wonderful plan that God has established for his people. And then he actually answers it with verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And Ben begins now, speaking of a question. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he's done this, what then will be withheld from us? Nothing. If he has given his very all, that would be his son, thus then, nothing will be 
slow, as it were, in coming to us. And then verse 33, another question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Here the elect stand, justified in God's sight. Well, who's going to come then and reverse that? Well, he goes on to say, it's God that justifieth. And then we have the question that is set before us in verse 34. Again, why are these questions here? They're to help us to think about the privileges and the promises that are ours to show us that God's purpose and his love towards us is secure and to work assurance in us that all of these things are true and that absolutely, as we'll look at the rest of this next week, Lord willing, that absolutely none of these things will ever separate us from the love of Christ. And in all this, we are more than conquerors, those who know God. Well, let's look at verse 34 again. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, he says, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So my first setting this evening is the question. I want us to look at the question that is set forth here in verse 34. And the question reads like this. Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemneth? Now, who is he speaking of here? Who, not the who part, but in the sense it's not supplied here, but who is it that would be condemned is the question. What individuals would be condemned if there was something to bring charge against them, who would it be? Well, it would be God's elect. It would be those whom God has made all these promises to and have secured in Jesus Christ. So who is he that condemneth? Now, children, what does the word condemneth mean, you think? You see that word there in the text. Who is he that condemneth? Well, it's the idea of condemnation. Uh, and the word there, condemnation, in our context, is the very opposite of justification. Throughout the book of Romans, that's exactly what he's trying to show us. That justification is the opposite of condemnation. To be contem- condemned means you're in a state of sin, and thus God's wrath is then awaiting upon you. To be in a state of justification means that God has legally taken care of all of those things that were held against us, He has declared us not guilty, and not only that, but He has made us righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so we stand then just as if we have never sinned. That is, that's how they get the idea of justification type of thing. So we've never, as far as God is concerned, in Christ Jesus, with all that writing for us and being for us, then the question is, who is He that condemneth? How could we be condemned if all of this is true? And thus to condemn us would mean to put us back under a state of sin which would then bring eternal judgment of God. So that's the question here. Who is he that condemneth? Who would dare take God's elect who have been justified by the grace of Christ, the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all those things that we have seen thus far in Romans, who would dare take those justified ones and condemn them? That's Paul's question. So Paul here now demands 
Who is he that condemns us? In light of all of this, who would dare open their mouth against us? Who would bring such a charge to God's people? Who would bring this charge of setting them back under the eternal wrath of God where they would experience the hatred and the judgment of God? Who would be the one to do that? Now, if this question was viewed in light of ourselves, it would be easy to understand, wouldn't it? Anyone could condemn us. God would condemn it. We wouldn't need the accuser Satan whispering in our ear telling us, oh, you're condemned, you're damned. No, God's eternal righteousness and His justice would demand that we would be condemned. Think of it in that light. In view of ourselves, we deserve to be condemned, do we not? In fact, think of some of the sins you've committed since you've been a Christian. And you're ashamed of them, aren't you? You wish you had never done them. And when you practice another sin, you think, Oh, how could I have been so thoughtless? Well, if we were viewing all of that within ourselves, outside of this great eternal covenant that God has made on our behalf, oh, we would be condemned, would we not? Here we look at the first three chapters of Romans. We're not going to. But if we were to take the time and go back again and just examine the first three chapters of Romans, and Paul showing us here that all men, both Jew and Gentile, are all under sin. All are under the law and thus under, uh, under his wrath, under his condemnation, under his judgment as viewed in themselves. We are the ones, as Romans chapter 3 tells us, that there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none good, no, not one. There is none that understandeth and so forth. And when the law comes as it ought to do, it says us in verse 19, Now we know that things, soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Both Jew and Gentile stand before God's courts, His Bench, as it were, and the hammer comes down, the gavel comes down, and it says to us, we are guilty. And why? Well, because of our own personal transgressions he's trying to show us here in the first three chapters. And then if we were to turn to chapter 5, we would see very plainly, not only do we stand condemned for our own personal unrighteousness, but we stand condemned in Adam, our head. As we are naturally and federally, as they call it, related unto him. That is, as he stood as a representative for us. He sinned, we sinned. He was condemned, we were condemned. So in these things, as we view ourselves in Adam, or if we view ourselves in ourselves, we are but condemned, are we not? We deserve that condemnation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, gives us a, a picture of our old lifestyle, does it not? That we were walking according to the course of this world and so forth. We were being led about by Satan. We enjoyed the lusts of the flesh. All these things that are against us, we did. We enjoyed. We loved. 
This was our life. This was our bread. This was our living. This is where we traded. And that was sin. And he says there, we were the children of wrath, even as others. So whatever they were, we were. That's what it tells us. So it's not a pretty picture if we were looking at all that of ourselves, is it? So I'm kind of glad when we read this passage here and he says, who shall or who is he that condemneth that it's not based on our standing that the answer comes. It's based on something else, isn't it? According to Romans 8, verse 1, he says, now, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But the world goes on. Satan's an accuser. We we sin. We have all these doubts and fears. The world is no friend to the the Christian. We have trials. We have adversities. As we see in verse 17 and 18 of this text, we are going to suffer. We groan with the rest of the creation. We're waiting for this whole thing to be over. It's such a mess. But then Paul says, who is he that condemneth? Well, let's look now at Paul's answer. And it's in four parts. Makes it a nice little outline. Kind of like it that way. Who is he that condemneth? Well, we just got through looking at it. If we stand in ourselves, we are condemned. And just about anybody, but especially God, could condemn us. But that's not the point, is it? He's not looking at it in that light. He's looking at it that we are not in ourselves standing. We are standing in those gracious promises that are founded upon the eternal and everlasting covenant that God has made with His Son, Jesus Christ, that is revealed unto us in the gospel of Jesus Christ Himself. And so Paul here, to answer his question... Who is he that condemneth? Paul puts forth four grounds or four reasons as to why the elect cannot be brought into condemnation. Why they will not have that charge sticking to them. You know, you may be an innocent person and they charge you with a particular crime and then haul you off to court. You could go to jail. You say, well, I'm innocent. It won't matter if the courts see it other way, don't they? Or you could be a crook and they catch you and then they charge you and then they bring you to court. Of course, you'll be tried and you'll be found guilty and then the punishment would be administered. We are found in the second category. We are the crooks. We are the guilty one. We are the ones who have committed those things. But thanks be to God, there's been one who has answered the charge against us. And that is Christ. And he gives us now four things to show us why we are not condemned. The first one is this. How does Paul answer? Who is he that condemneth? He says, first of all, it is Christ that died. So here's reason or grounds number one, that even though there may be a charge brought up against us by the world, by Satan, or even our own conscience at times, God will not charge us. Why? Because it is Christ that died. 
You see, the Lord Jesus, he's teaching us here, is the one who died in our stead. He took our place. Sin, as we mentioned earlier, brought death upon us. Yet Christ, in his mercy and his grace, did what, though? He died for us. So when the conscience begins gnawing at us, who is he that condemns? Or you ought to be condemned for what you say, for what you do, for how, how low of a Christian you are and how slow you are about your duties and all those kind of things and the trials and adversities that make us all down. We should say, yes, but Christ died for me. When Satan comes accusing us and charging us, remember in Pilgrim's Progress, that was one of the things that Apollyon did. He charged Christian with his former sins and with his present sins, if you recall. That's what Satan does. He'll bring up old sins and he'll bring up the, the ones we commit now and he tells us we'll be weak enough to commit some more. How do we answer that? We answer by this. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. His grace stood for us. Look in Romans 5, just a couple of chapters, three chapters back. For when we were yet, when we were yet without strength, in verse 6, in due time, notice, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there again, twice he brings this up. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we see here, what do we got? If we are accused, if someone would even dare bring up the charge against us and seek to condemn us, we have this going for our case. Christ died for us. Think of that. If Paul was to not answer anything else in regards to this question, he'd be good on really on good grounds, wouldn't he? Christ died for us. So why can't we be condemned? Because Christ died for us. You see, in his death, the Lord Jesus satisfied all the divine justice of God. Yes, it's true. The law was against us. We sinned. We were guilty. The condemnation of Adam's guilt or in transgression was upon us. But yet Christ removed that. His, his death satisfied all of the righteous demands of God. Isaiah 53, very familiar chapter to those of us who believe the gospel. It is certainly a dear chapter, but in chapter 53, where he's speaking of Jehovah's servant, whom is none other than Christ himself, he tells us, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When he thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. God's wrath, God's justice was answered. God was 
to use the biblical term, he was propitiated, pacified, satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. If I said if we were to stop there, it still wouldn't be bad, but he goes on further. He gives us another reason now. Here is another grounds as to why nothing can be laid to our charge. Not only are we justified, but he tells us in verse 34, Christ has died for us. And though Paul doesn't stop there, he says, Yea, rather, that is risen again. So now we see the second ground or the second answer to who is he that condemneth and why we will not be condemned. Haldane asks, what purpose would the death of Christ have served if he had been overcome and swallowed up by it? It's true, death had holden on Christ, as the writer tells us in Acts there, as Peter's preaching. That's how powerful that sin and the penalty of sin is, that it held our Lord Jesus for three days and three nights. But it couldn't hold him forever, could it? The promise was made to him in the eternal covenant that he would rise again. That if he would be the one who would bear the sins of his people. That if he would take upon himself their sins and be punished in their stead. That he would be raised again the third day. So how do you know it says all that? Because that's what happened. And thus, we know that's what was coveted between the Father and the Son. But think a moment. What would have happened if Christ would have stayed in the grave? If He had not arisen? What do you think would happen to God's elect? Do you think we would be justified? Do you think we would not be condemned? Well, what does Paul tell us? Now, this, of course, is an if. And that's the whole thing that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if there... He says now in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some people there at Corinth, or false teachers who were coming in anyway, and teaching that there was no resur- there's going to be no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then Christ Himself did not rise again. And if that be the case, Paul really says you're in trouble. He says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith vain is vain, also vain. So what would have happened if Christ would have stayed in the grave? Well, verse 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and ye are yet in your sins. And so while we may say, well, that's enough that Christ died, and it is in that aspect of it, in that sense. But brethren, if he would have stayed dead in that grave and never have risen again, you and I would have had plenty of, uh, of things to charge against us. We'd have been brought into that courthouse of heaven. And those sins would have been brought forth for us. And we would have been condemned. But aren't you glad, though, it says here, Yea, rather, that is risen again. He is risen again. The resurrection is also a proof of that victory over death. You remember. That when He arose, that vanquished death. And yea, even eternal death, the second death. 
He, in His resurrection, there is also the truth of the justification of His people. Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Good news. I think that's what the gospel is. That Christ died, that He was buried, and that He rose again. That's good news. Why is it good news? Well, for these very things here. It's justification, proof of the, of, of the resurrection, of the victory over death, and our sins have been forgiven. That it's not all in vain, despite what the skeptics say, and the unbelievers, and the devil. Well, that's the second one. What's the third grounds, he says? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Notice number three. Who is even at the right hand of God? Here is another plus for God's people. Jesus Christ not only was raised from the dead, but He is now at God's right hand. In fact, He is seated, the Scripture says, at God's right hand. When Christ made that satisfaction for our sins, and He rose again, the Bible also teaches us that He ascended into the heavens. And there He took His throne and set in it by His Father. Of course, that's an emblem of the fact that the work has been finished. He, the Father was satisfied. When you're done with something, you sit down. But it's also a type or a picture of the uh, victory, as it were, in the work. He would not have sat down if He still had more work to do. You see, He rose not only as a king, but also as a priest. He's not a priest who is busy in this sense, running about making sacrifices for sin. He has made that one all-sufficient, complete sacrifice for the sins of His people. Hebrews 10 speaks of this point in verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever set down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering that is the offering of himself he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified so he arose as our high priest he sat down as our high priest he also arose as king and lord over his people as and that for that matter over the whole world and henceforth expecting his enemies to be made his footstool. You know what your footstool is? That's where you would place your feet. Christ has his feet, his authority. As we spoke this morning, of, remember the, the offerings were laid at the apostles' feet. They were in charge of the money. And thus they distributed. And I got too much for them, you remember. But the point was, that's where they put it at their feet. That was showing their uh, ownership and... Um, authority there the same way with our Lord Jesus when he puts his feet upon his enemies they're his you see. Acts in that sermon that Paul Peter excuse me preached on the day of Pentecost tells us that Jesus arose from the dead he says for David is not ascended to the heavens but he himself saith the Lord said unto my Lord sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool therefore 
Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You don't make him Lord. That's nonsense. You hear this? Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Baloney. God is the one who made Christ Lord. And he is seated at God's right hand now, doing as he pleases. Our God is in the heavens, and He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. We don't sit around, or I'll put it this way, God doesn't sit around getting information from His creatures on how to run this universe. God runs it as it pleases Him. And tonight He tells us very plainly, He has run it in such a fashion, ran it in such a fashion, that who is He that condemneth? It is Christ who is at God's right hand. Finish the work and is seated for his people. And then he tells us one more reason as to why or the grounds as to why we will not be condemned. We won't take the time to read all of it, but verse 34 says, Who also maketh intercession for us. Here is why. We won't be condemned. You ever wonder about what your present sins you commit? What does God do with those things? You've been saved. You've uh, All the sins that you've committed in the past certainly were forgiven. But we also teach and believe that our present sins and our future sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Well, on a day-to-day basis, how are those things taken care of? I sin. I've sinned today. You have sinned today, Christian, either in thought, word, or deed. What does Christ do with them? What does God do with them? How are they handled, as it were, in God's courtroom? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus intercedes for us. Not only in the aspect of sin, but the whole aspect of everything about the Christian life. Again, turn to Hebrews, and these will be some of the closing passages that we'll look at. Hebrews 7 speaks of his high priesthood, drawing sinners unto himself, and all that sorts of stuff. Very good stuff. Verse 25, speaking of the unchangeable priesthood of our Lord Jesus, he says, Who, Wherefore, he, the speaking of Christ, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And he gets into the high priesthood work of Jesus Christ in verses 26 through 28. See, Christ went to heaven. Yes, he's seated. But there's another aspect. Where we look, turn this way a little bit. We see another aspect of his labors going on in heaven. He is our intercessor. Chapter 9, verse 24 says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He stands there for us. That's why we're not condemned. That's why no one can bring charge. We have an advocate who never loses a case. He may grab a lawyer here, and he may win, or he may not win. We have an attorney in heaven who never loses. He has his father's ear. 
His work has procured all things necessary for us. And it's a sure and everlasting covenant. And then 1 John 1, or excuse me, 2. Speaking of those sins we mentioned a while ago. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. That means a lawyer, attorney. This idea of, of interceding, intercession. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, these are the four grounds then as to why these charges will not stick in the courts of heaven against us. Though we sin, we sin in our own person, we've sinned in Adam. These things, yes, truly and of ourselves are against us if we were standing in ourselves, but we're not. We stand in Christ. Remember the psalm we sang? How can God look upon us as something as beautiful and clean and righteous? Well, He looks at us because of Christ. And it is through His righteousness He sees us. So in this aspect of this legal dealings with us, sin has forever been put away and never to be brought up again. Ever. It's as sure as that word to David when David committed that awful sin of adultery and the murder of his adulterous wife, uh, her husband, Uriah. David says, I have sinned. Nathan said, Thou shalt not die. God has put away thy sin. That's true of every one of us tonight who are believers. You won't die. God has put away your sin. What a blessing. What a privilege. Let me bring three applications very quickly to this. And some inferences here, by the way. Observations. Go back to that text. For those of you or for those who may be struggling with the so-called doctrine of universal atonement, the idea that Christ died for everyone. Well, if He did, they're not condemned. Because notice what He says. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. If Christ died for all, no one then will stand condemned before God. Universal salvation, isn't it? But we also see in Scripture that that's just not so. So in reality, then, there is a limited, if you want to call it that, or a particular atonement. For those whom Christ died for... Or the ones who will never be brought into condemnation. Here is a text to prove and to show the reality of particular redemption. And then secondly, look here, believers, at what great work on our behalf. If someone was to do something great for you, would you be thankful, grateful? So, well, of course I would. I ought to be very thankful. Well, how then we should be thankful and grateful that all of this has been completed for us. We are a thankful lot. Think about that. Are we really a thankful people? 
Well, it'll be played out not only in our prayers, Lord. Thank you for the grace of Christ. Thank you for all that these have. But it'll also be worked out in our lives. Lack of murmuring, complaining, that sort of thing. Remember the children of Israel had all of that, had basically a free ride. And I don't mean that to be funny. They had a free ride out of Egypt. God had miraculously brought those plagues and judgments upon Egypt and they never touched God's people. And then he leads them out with a strong hand that Passover night, you remember. And he takes them out into the wilderness. And of course, they see their first trial. They're, the waters of the rivers flowing. They look behind. Here comes Pharaoh's armies. And of course, then they begin to woe, mourn, complain. Would we have stayed in Egypt? And then, of course, other times. Well, all that was was the incidence of ungratefulness for what God had done for them. He released them from the bondage of sin and destruction and the wages that were upon them. And all they did for years and years, the 40 years, was murmur. Sounds like some Christians, isn't it? God has delivered them from the awfulness and the penalty of sin for them to, as it were, they think, to gripe the rest of their lives about the trials and the adversities put upon us. They must not know much of Romans 8, do they? But we know that all things work together for good to them who are love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Do they not know Christ has died for them? Yea, rather, has risen again, who is at God's right hand, who maketh intercession for them. And then to the unbeliever, you'll know nothing of these great privileges that we stand in outside of Christ. You'll know the condemnation of God. That you will know. You need to repent. You need to believe upon Christ. The gospel is what we've been preaching tonight. may not have known it, but that was the gospel. Christ has done these things. And all who believe, Paul says, are justified from all things. Stay in your unbelief and you'll find out the eternal wrath of God. Terrible. Terrible. If you can imagine the glories of heaven and all of its greatness and what that will be like, what do you think hell, the opposite end, will be like? Where the tone continually gnashes because of the flames, the pain, the suffering. Where the worm dieth not. Wouldn't that be terrible? What a contrast heaven and hell is. May God give you the grace to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ.